0: Welcome to the fortnightly Peters McGregor Global Investing Podcast. Our aim is to keep abreast of market developments, provide our views on a range of companies and investing topics and explain how we're positioning our portfolio. Please be aware that this podcast is intended to provide general information only and that all forms of investing involves risk of capital loss. Make sure to do your own due diligence and seek professional advice before making any investment decisions. Good morning, I'm Wayne Peters and today we're in conversation with Kanal Fora, who is partner at White Whale Partners, an investment advisory company headquartered in Mumbai, India. White Whale advises institutions and family offices for their investments in India. I have known Kanal over many years and he's been an exceptional investor in emerging markets. India is expected to have a larger population within seven years than China and coupled with the recent structural reforms of the Modi government, suggests there will be significant investment opportunities for us as a long-term value investor. Understanding the local environment, the driving factors in the market, and the various risks associated within them is what I want to explore with Canal today. Good afternoon, Canal. Hi, Wayne. How are you? I'm very, very well. I've got a few questions, but I'm happy for you to elaborate as you see fit as we go through, just to get an insight of the opportunity set that you see in India, where we are currently, and some of the dynamics that are quite specific to the Indian market. So let me start. Why would an investor consider Indian companies as a place to invest?
1: Sure. So Wayne, India now is the fastest growing large economy in the world having overtaken China recently with a GDP growth of more than 8%. China has had an unprecedented run of growth over the last 20 to 30 years, and we believe that India could be in a similar phase of its economy. So to give you context, India is a large but still fairly young economy. India is roughly about a $2.7 trillion economy, which is said to be the fifth largest economy as the World Bank. GDP data comes out this year as it should overtake the U.K. as the fifth largest economy. However, on a per capita income level, India stands at less than $2,000 compared to $60,000 for the U.S., 40000 for the U.K., and 9000 for China. Thus, there is significant room to grow, especially considering India has one of the youngest populations in the world, with a median age of about 28 compared to 37 in China, 45 in the U.S., So it's a very exciting phase for the Indian economy
0: and we feel that it's well-poised to grow or to be the fastest-growing large economy in the world for the next many years. Well, it certainly is very exciting. Um, The the demographics of the country too is a, a very appealing aspect to me. So of the major large economies around the world... India is the only one without an ageing population. I think statistically about 35% of the population is 25 years or younger. This contrasts quite significantly, even with economies and countries like China, which all have ageing populations and completely different challenges. Could you talk about uncovering value in Indian companies? You know, what you're observing in India today and how have you been able to increase your confidence in the market generally over the years that you've invested? Sure. So what has been very interesting to me when I look at public listed space in India is the ownership structure. So if I can use rough approximations
1: of the cumulative free flow in the public listed space, roughly 50% is owned by foreign institutional investors. And a large chunk of the balance is owned by retail, domestic, mutual funds. So when I kind of look at investment decisions um, by these respective subsets, so FIIs typically are dictated by top-down investment allocation decisions, and thus unrelated global macro event could cause... Them to reduce the exposure in India, causing volatility in the Indian market, which may be an opportunity to pick up good business there, bargains. On the domestic institutional side, given their retail investor base, they're constantly striving to beat benchmark indices over short-term horizons. Thus, they cannot deviate too much away from benchmark stocks, thus given size of the FIIs and VIIs influence on the market and the fact that research analysts who cover them are incentivized through trading commissions. Typically, the coverage doesn't deviate too much away from index stocks in terms of the research coverage. So there, there's about more than 5,000 listed companies in India. And if you're able to do strong bottom-up research and have longer-term investment horizon, you almost have a sustainable competitive advantage on
0: covering value. Plus, you're given the opportunities if you see capital flow flowing out of the market based on macro considerations, which in many cases has nothing to do with the fundamentals of the businesses that you're looking to invest in. It can give you an opportunity to take advantage of that weakness with the recent period, a classic example, I would assume.
1: So, I mean, if you look at, and this again comes back to, you know, the first point I made in terms of the the size of the foreign institutional investors in the market structure of Indian public listed companies. Right. And if you look at uh, monthly uh, fund flows, FIs have been pulling capital out of the Indian market over the, the last year almost every month, driving that volatility that we've seen in the Indian market. The DIs have been filling that gap this year, but usually, you know, the volatility is significant when that is not the case. Yes. And so, you know, you're, you're in an environment where you're seeing on the ground. Businesses strengthening in terms of the micros, but because of you know global macro events pushing fund flows out of out of the country, and so those are typically when the businesses that you've identified is potentially available
0: at uh, good reasonable valuations. Yes, but just following on in that line, of course, greater volatility from a value investor's perspective is a tremendous backdrop to have, um, because you can take advantage of other people's irrational selling as far as the fundamentals of the business is concerned. But that volatility, if it's a characteristic of the market, um, also dictates not using leverage or margin to invest in this market. What are your thoughts on that? I 100% agree. To invest in India, you have to be well-disciplined
1: and and patient as an investor. So, due to volatility, your both your upsides and downsides can get exaggerated over a short-term period. Yep, yep. Right.
0: Um, and, and using leverage would, would not be a good idea in, in such cases. No, okay. Could Kunal, could you just talk to your assessment of the the broad Modi reforms that have, uh, have been enacted over the last couple of years and how you're seeing them play out in the marketplace? Sure. So, you know, over the recent past, we've
1: seen... Uh, it's been quite exciting what we've seen on the ground, right? Uh, India over the last decade or so has grown in the range of seven and a seven and a half percent. And we think that number should only accelerate going forward, right, given the government's reform and development agenda. So there's been uh, significant structural changes in recent times that should hold the country in good stead for years, if not decades to come. So if I can just you examples of a few that have been implemented, are being implemented, or intend to be implemented, you know, just to give you a perspective. So digitization of the media space was was one thing that was uh, implemented a few years ago, and this changed analog connection, cable connections, to digital connections, right? This helps stem significant leakage through the supply chain industry right and this is a, a large structural shift in an entire industry um another when you look at data connectivity both from the private uh, sector as well as government this has been on overdrive recently only 20% of the installed uh, telecom towers were connected by fiber optic cables for high speed data connectivity And we can see on the ground the usage of both smartphones, the penetration of smartphones, and the usage of data has been growing exponentially in terms of the quantum of data being used as well as the speeds of of data increasing, right? And this in itself is um, a massive, massive structural shift um, Mm -hmm. that we will continue to witness in India going forward recently we've also seen the implementation of the goods and services tax which has put the entire country under a uniform tax code uh, and should bring about significant operational efficiencies as well as create a shift towards the organized sector and increase government revenues while doing that right so this again is one of the largest reforms
0: that the government has undertaken the re- the modi government has undertaken in its tenure mm. And, and, and I, I, I think that GST is going to be absolutely critical to the government um, executing on its forward plans as well. I mean, statistically, prior to the introduction of the GST, this broad-ranging uh, consumption tax, the percentage of GDP that India has raised through taxation has been less than a third that of Western developed countries like Australia and, and the US so the government has had, you know, less than one third of the money that the Western developed countries have had to develop programs for investment and in infrastructure over a long time. So, I definitely view this introduction of the GST as being absolutely um, critical and important for taking advantage of the opportunity in front. What has been your on-the-ground experience of the identification system, the ADAR, the retina and fingerprint identification component that the government has rolled out to reduce the amount of uh, fraud in the system, multiple receipts of government handouts and so forth?
1: There's been a number of measures taken, right? Um, One of them being the direct, direct benefit transfer, which meant that um, there have been certain subsidies allocated that were allocated to the rural poor. And in the past, because there was no way to kind of identify directly to the beneficiaries themselves, there were a number of middlemen in the system which caused a lot of leakage by the time the subsidies actually got to whom they were meant for. Now, with, you know, Azar cards in place that, links banks bank accounts of each individual these kind of subsidies go directly into the accounts of who, who they're meant for and thus cutting off significant leakage in the system so that's just one example of how such programs have kind of benefited um in terms of just efficiency transparency and how the general population
0: has benefited greatly from uh, such programs. Mm-hmm. Well, to be watching this and witnessing this in, in real time, I think is uh, yeah, highly exciting for an investor that has a long-term time frame.
1: Sure. This is a very exciting time to actually be witnessing this change, right? So we're seeing a lot of large-scale structural changes that are being put in place currently, you know, these should bear dividends over a you know, number of years, if not decades to
0: come. Hmm. What are some of the key risks investors need to be aware of when investing in India? So like in most economies, you know, the key risks would
1: be political, economic, currency and, uh, you know, in emerging markets, corporate governance risks as well.
0: And how do you think about those four key risks and, and your assessment of, of where they are today? So the
1: first three are, are macro risks, and um, you know India has been fairly stable in that context. So on the political front, um, India has been you know fairly stable for you know a number of years now, um, and especially this current government that has come into power with a clear majority, with the development agenda on the back of. Uh, you know, development and and reform agenda It leaves leaves India in a very uh, good position in terms of political stability, especially that, you know, they're they're stable at the top and and, uh, most likely to come back in power next uh, election as well. On the economic front, besides oil, India is a fairly self-sufficient economy since it is mainly dependent on internal consumption rather than exports. Mm-hmm. So it's its foreign reserves are at the highest points that it's had in history and you know oil obviously being the, the, the biggest import of for the country. the rest of it is is, is fairly self-sufficient. On the FX front, if, if you look at how the currency has performed since the economy opened up in, in 1991, the currency has depreciated on average about three odd percent since then. And um, it's it's very difficult to hedge this because you know interest rates in India are are high compared to the uh, the West, um, and so hedging costs uh, get quite expensive. And so, typically, investors invest in India have to kind of take this in their stride. But given the outsized returns that you could make in India, you know this this is
0: typically you know taken pretty well in their stride. Yes. Yep. While and, investing here. Yep. And again um with a 5 to 10 year time hora- investment time horizon the returns should significantly outweigh any depreciation in the currency and i would suspect Cornell, that you know as the uh, reforms uh, take hold and the government be- becomes better finance there will be increasing support for the currency over that medium to longer term sure so you know a lot of the
1: Stability in the currency would come from inbound investment into India, mm. and as the economy opens up, and as um, you know the the market cycles change or the business cycles change, right? You would expect more and more foreign investment coming into India, um, as well as you know domestic capex cycle kicking kicking on in um, should should be good for
0: and um, stabilizing the currency as well. Sure. And uh, what are your views on assessing corporate governance risks around companies that may be of interest from an investment perspective? Sure, so I think this is, this is a, a, a very important
1: risk um, to address, especially investing in India. Um, you know, we use a number of quantitative and qualitative checks. We conduct detailed accounting forensics and other accounting checks We meet with company management teams um, as well as customers, suppliers, competitors, other stakeholders. We analyze capital allocation decisions as well as other decisions impacting minority shareholders, Monitor insider trading patterns, and very importantly, we try and align ourselves with management while investing. So, um, you know, given that there are over 5,000, you know, public-listed companies in India, and there are a lot of companies creating, you know, tremendous value. There's a lot of opportunity. It's, it's just a matter of, you know, doing your work and backing the right management team, and then, you know, staying invested.
0: Yes, that's been Peter's McGregor's approach to date. Um, our our key investment in India is through the uh, Toronto listed company called Fairfax India, and they have eight key investments mostly in unlisted businesses in India. The largest example of that is is their 50% interest in the Bangalore airport. But for us, knowing the management over decades and having met with the CEOs of each of those individual companies, having a high degree of confidence that the management interests are aligned with those of shareholders and they've proven their high standards of stewardship over decades has been an important consideration for us making those investments. So we we certainly think very much alike there. Having a long-term time horizon allows you to uh, take advantage of the increased volatilities driven by macro capital flows. So uh, the time horizon, I guess, is a key mitigant to the short-term volatility movements and risks in the marketplace. So with a long term time horizon, of course, when the volatility spikes and prices drop, that usually gives a tremendous buying opportunity. So, I guess the time frame is a major way to mitigate these risks. Politically, as you said, the agenda's been set and framework's been set now for some period to come. And my sense is once India starts to taste the successes of these these reforms, um, then uh, they're just going to be uh, re-emphasized and built on over the coming period. Have you specialized in any particular areas of industry um, or have you been very opportunistic You know, going to where you see the biggest uh, returns and the greatest uh, short-term concerns? Yeah, so uh, let me actually just add on to what we were saying uh, regarding risk, right? So You
1: know, as an investor or an investment manager, right, risk management is probably the most important function. When you're looking at a market like India, you have to be very, very disciplined in the way you go about your investing. So you need to have your frameworks in place as to, you know, what sort of risks you like to take and what sort of risks you don't want to be exposed to. Mm. And I think those frameworks has, you know, helped me in, in pretty good stead while investing in India, right? So that's one point. The other point obviously is patience, right? And because, you know, markets sometimes tend to run away from you in a very short period of time, you have to be very disciplined on, you know, what your entry points are. Mm. Yes. and given that markets are volatile you will get those entry points time and again in terms of the way we think about investing right we're not focused on any particular sector but what we tend to focus on is is change so we we try to identify where can we see kind of structural change whether it is at, a, at an industry level, at a business level, at a management level, corporate events, sometimes change a business strategy, et cetera, right? The, the call we try to take is, does this business look very different three to five years from now? And if so, we would then go about isolating the risks that that particular investment would expose us to, and then going and doing a lot of work around those risks. Mm those risks or not right so basically identify what your downsides are try and quantify them and put risk reward into context while having a long-term investment strategy in place saying that this business can look very different at least three to five years from now than it is today these are the risks that i've isolated these are the ones i'm willing to take these are the ones that i'm not willing to take and then use that kind of framework to decide which
0: business to back, which management to back, and then which ones to avoid. Yep, And deciding that ahead of time, I think, has been very, very important for us because having that framework really helps you make the correct decisions when volatility increases. Uh, Kunal, that's been excellent. Um, In closing, do you have any further uh, remarks you would like to add? I think it's a very exciting time to look at India as an investment destination. Mm. Just
1: looking at kind of my career moving from you know investing globally to deciding to focus specifically and solely on India to invest you know it's been a very very fruitful decision for me right and I've probably been lucky to be investing in a time of change which is likely to continue for the next many years given the phase that the economy is in Mm. and so it's a very
0: exciting time
1: to be investing in India
0: yep well, Canal, thank you very much. That's been tremendous to get your insights, and they certainly align with the excitement and uh, prospective nature that we hold for India as a whole, and then you know specific companies. and Good luck. Thanks, Wayne. Thanks, been a pleasure. Night.